Kate Parker. This is Warming Signs, a podcast with the sound minds of science. There on my Twitter timeline, in my Facebook feed, and around every corner when I'm strolling through the gram. Climate trolls may be few in number, but they sure know how to make it seem like they're everywhere. And their go-to lines are pretty predictable. No one knows that better than my friend and colleague, Bob Henson. He's been talking about climate change for more than a decade, and he's written several books on it. And he's just a genius when it comes to climate. So we chatted about the common refrains from deniers and why none of their beloved lines hold water. Bob, I'm so glad to finally have you on Warming Signs, not just a guest on the podcast, but a colleague and a brilliant one at that. Thank you for helping me debunk climate myths. Well, thanks, Kate. You're very kind, and it's very, very nice to be here uh, at long last. I have been loving your show and uh, soaking it up, and it's just really nice to finally uh, be here and be able to contribute. Then this is such an important topic, hopefully one that is a good shareable like this is the this is the episode you bookmark because i think you and i both experience quite a lot of these climate myths thrown at us in the comments section i mean we work in media and you know our stuff is published publicly our articles and our work and you get comments on them and a lot of them are kind of these lines of denialism that seem to <laughs> just come up again and again. Yeah, it's like whack-a-mole sometimes. And, uh, you know, I, I like that sometimes people ask really fresh, interesting, offbeat questions about climate change because there are some good ones. And uh, mixed in with those are the ones we've heard over and over and over. And uh, I always try to come up with new and, and interesting ways to sort of engage people and yet uh, counter, counteract and contradict the, uh, the, the false memes that are out there. Yeah, well, we should. We should create some of our own memes. I'm going to put your face on a meme and I'm going to tweet at to just tweet uh, it at people every time. It has to be both of our faces. Yeah. <laughs> OK, fine. But fine. I'll make sure we get a screen grab of this. OK, so okay. Um, we have uh, many lines that are common. And one of them that I get all the time to my face on Twitter, on Facebook, everywhere is the climate has always changed. Why is that a climate myth? Well, uh, where to start on that one? You know, first of all, it's true. You know, the climate has always changed. Um, you know, Earth is 4.6 billion years old, give or take a few. And, and the climate has evolved and changed over time. And we know this, you know, there are very good explanations for for many, if not most, of the big, big climate changes that took place over those billions of years. So it's not so much that climate hasn't changed, it's how is it changing and why is it changing? And uh, the changes that are going on now are pretty clearly associated with, with something that we humans are doing to the atmosphere. And that's the big difference right now. And I think what makes this such a durable uh, saying that the climate has always changed is that it taps into some stuff deep in deep inside us you know we know that we're we're an ancient civilization in many ways the earth is ancient and it's comforting to think that well we're just going through one of these phases that happens in this world you know the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and thus it has always been right so 
uh, it's much easier to not reckon with the fact that we're putting vast, vast amounts of something in the air that warms the atmosphere. And the hard uh, truth. You know, to, yep, it is a hard truth. And and I think also it's hard for people to grapple with the fact that uh, something that we humans do could actually have these global effects, like, you know, especially something invisible, which carbon dioxide is, you know. How, so if you think about climate always changing, well, then that pushes aside any discussion, right? If it's always changed, therefore no changes happening now are important, right? Well, it, it the important part is, hey, maybe it has been warmer in the past, but were there humans and was our society and the way that our civilization is set up that in that environment in the past? And I think that's kind of where the disconnect comes in. And the rate of change also, right? Like we're, we're talking yeah. about um, this rate of change has not been found in our ice cores, in our fossil records, in our records that we have whenever it comes to the increase in uh, CO2 in our atmosphere. That's right. Now, the rate of change is funny because, you know, we're used to responding to Facebook or Twitter posts in in microseconds, right? So something that's changing over the course of years or decades may not feel that rapid. But in geological terms, uh, the warming happening right now, the changes to atmospheric moisture, uh, intensification of drought impacts, these are changing at speeds that are geologically the blink of an eye. So uh, that's another reason we really have to take this seriously. I want to bring up another one of these very common climate myths that we see, you know, um, thrown around online and even coming out of the mouths of politicians. And that's something you just touched on, that humans don't produce enough CO2 to have this kind of impact. How do we know that that is a myth? That's right. Uh, It's easy to think that. Um, And in part, it's easy to think that because we hear the numbers every year that carbon dioxide is now roughly 410 parts per million in the atmosphere, right? And if you're following climate, that's a really shocking number. If you're not following climate, you might think, oh, well, 410 out of a million, that's not very much, right? That's about 0.4%, 0.04%. So uh, it's kind of easy to dismiss it in sort of a common sense gut level. You know, how could something that's sparse in the atmosphere make a big difference? Uh, the counter argument is that it does. <laughs> you know, sometimes small amounts of something make a big difference. You know, you could take microgram of arsenic. I'm using this for sake of argument. I don't know exactly how much arsenic you would have to take, but it wouldn't take very much to kill you based, you know, compared to how much we weigh, right? We wouldn't be happy to see a small amount of anthrax, even a little bit. No, 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 no. It's it's good to remind ourselves that uh, with a large system and especially a complex system like our bodies are and like the atmosphere is, a little small addition of something can translate into much larger effects. And so that's why we are so concerned about all the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in particular, because it's so long lived. Uh, You know, we've known for 150 years that carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere. You put more carbon dioxide uh, in a container and uh, put radiation into it and it warms up more than it would without that. So uh, that's not new science. It's very old science. We know that carbon dioxide has increased in our atmosphere something like 40% uh, since the advent of the Industrial Revolution. And we know it's warmed up uh, almost 2 degrees Fahrenheit in that time. So uh, 
you've got a really strong argument just purely based on those two facts that something is going on, that these two are related, uh, especially when you have the laboratory chemistry uh, to back it up. And we see it happening before our eyes. It is kind of wild to think that something so small can have such a major impact. And it is nice to maybe think that, you know, we humans are small in the scope of the universe. But in the scope of harming our planet, we're pretty good at it. I'd like to add a corollary to that. We are, in fact. Uh, You know, we're talking about the amount of carbon dioxide that goes into the air each year from uh, human activity. It's roughly 35 billion tons. Okay. Jeez. Now, okay, imagine if every vehicle or every smokestack put out little chunks of charcoal. You know, imagine carbon dioxide was visible. You know, we wouldn't be sitting here wondering how to get people to pay attention to the carbon emissions. You know, it would literally be in our face, right? But we don't see it. And as we all know, it's so easy to ignore something that you can't see. I actually was just working on a story today, Bob, that, um, you know, one gallon of fuel that's burned, gasoline burned, is the equivalent of around 20 pounds of CO2. And it was actually taught, the story's about drive throughs and a ban that Minneapolis, Minnesota has put in about saying, hey, no more drive throughs in our city. And in the their point is, we're going to help curb climate change by doing this. And it seems like such a measly thing, people sitting in a drive-thru. So I did the math. And mm-hmm. it actually works out that just McDonald's globally, I estimated around 50 million people a day using their drive-thru. They have more than 70 million people a day eating at their restaurants. But I, I estimated low. It comes out to 35 million pounds of CO2 a day just from people idling in just the McDonald's drive-thru. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And like an average of them being in it for three minutes. And that's like being generous, I think. Yeah. (laughs) It's usually a little longer. Boy, that's, that's a really stunning and really telling statistic. And, uh, you know, it's an example of where little changes that we can make in our own lives really do make a difference. You know, it's uh, personally, I get a kick out of parking if I'm at some place, you know, getting coffee or a sandwich or whatever, a parking and then walking past the line of cars <laughs> with people sitting in their cars. <laughs> I kind of want to go tra la la. My favorite <laughs> is to mobile order and then walk in and then you just walk past everyone and you get the ah. envy from everyone's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Good a pro tip there for you. Okay, so yeah. um, another one of these myths that we hear all the time uh, is that there are scientists on both sides, that it's not settled science. What say you? Well, the first thing I say is, what does it mean? You know, when we say it's not settled science, what aspect? I mean, you know, the fact that greenhouse gases warm the atmosphere is indisputable. You know, it's it, there's no debate over the fact we've added these vast amounts of carbon dioxide. And, and there's no dispute that carbon dioxide warms the air, right? So on that basic level, there's really no debate about what we think of as global warming. I think where there is legitimate debate is on some of the consequences on how certain certain weather phenomena will play out. And that's why we have really good research going on in those areas. But there really isn't a debate about the, the first order facts. Uh, if we put a gas in the air, the gas 
traps radiation and warms the atmosphere. So I think the impression that scientists are on either side is a, in part a bit dated because back, say, especially in the 1990s, when climate change first hit public awareness, yeah, there were a fair number of scientists who were willing to go on talk shows and panels and say, well, we don't really know the science very well. We need to, we should, we should wait before we act. And I think even then that created the impression of, of kind of a, you know, uh, half on one side, half on the other. It's never been that. Uh, even back in the 1970s, when the planet really was not warming uh, for several decades, and there were some pretty strikingly cold winters in North America and Europe, and even a little bit of media concern about a uh, imminent ice age. <laughs> even then, um, even then, most of the scientific papers published were already more concerned about long-term warming from greenhouse gases. So even back in the 70s, most of the scientists in this realm were really more worried about what we're putting in the air in terms of greenhouse gases. So uh, it's just wrong to say that uh, there's scientists. It's not wrong to say there's scientists on both sides. There's a few scientists who have a kind of a cottage industry over dismissing climate change or saying it's not going to be that big a deal. Like, yeah, maybe it's there, but it's really not going to matter. Uh, you're being hysterical. Uh, so those folks are out there, but their numbers are tiny, you know, probably fractions of a percent compared to the number that are working. Yeah, like I, maybe, like to, maybe like yeah. a handful, like on one hand. Yeah, and, and frankly, every discipline has a few way, way far outliers. I mean, there's, there was an uh, AIDS researcher named Peter Duisberg back in the 1990s who had the idea that HIV was not the cause of AIDS, that what caused AIDS was people taking um, recreational drugs or antiviral drugs. And wow. he got a lot of attention. Yeah, he had an influence. And in fact, in South Africa, the South African government heard what he was saying. And there is a little bit of, of let's take our foot off the uh, the brake on dealing with this. So uh, his work, of course, was um, debunked, but he, he was in there in the, in the dialogue. And he was a you know well-known um, molecular biologist. So we don't base public policy on what one expert says, even if that expert is highly ranked. It's 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 why we have consensus science. You know, scientists do the work, but it's it's the consensus process to evaluate how solid the work is and how well it's been replicated. And the consensus is greater than ninety-seven percent. Um, that you know that study was a little bit older, and some other studies that have gone and looked at every climate study, um, like Naomi Oreska's. I mean, it's a hundred percent. You know, it's 99%. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the, the agreement is really across the board. And you know what I have found actually even recently is that a lot of the so-called climate change denialists, or they call themselves climate skeptics, um, it's, they're not even denying it anymore. It's just, oh, we don't think the impacts are going to be as bad as it is. Here's something that no one can deny. Iceland recently lost a glacier and climate change killed it. By 2014, the Ajokal Glacier had lost so much ice, it wasn't thick enough to move. It lost its status as a glacier and Iceland is in mourning. Scientists and officials recently gathered to memorialize the former glacier. The ceremony included the unveiling of a plaque with a grim warning for future generations. We recently spoke to Andre Magnuson, 
the Icelandic author who penned it. This is more like a symbolic moment, a trend that people are feeling everywhere in Iceland. You could say that Ork is maybe, it was like a message from the future, you could say, that is, uh, we're just feeling, okay, so it's, we are there. You know, now they're starting to go one by one. A letter to the future. Ork is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. August 2019, 415 ppm of CO2. The text is not talking to a distant future, it's just talking to a maybe my closest relative. Not even uh, you know a sci-fi relative, it's just like a, a person that I will uh, babysit you know, for the first 10 years of its life. So, uh, so the idea of this text is to kind of acknowledge that yeah, both it's to make a market date instead of us being these slowly boiling products that don't notice this slowly rising heat. The idea is that we must not normalize what is happening and that we must understand that it's historical and it has historical consequences. And the only way to avoid those consequences is to stop ignoring the problem. Now let's get back to my chat with Bob because we are about to break down one of the most common climate myths. I do want to touch on this because you mentioned this. And I think that we have the the inherent uncertainty that exists in research and scientists. It is a, basically, I see it in my husband's brain all the time. It is this constant (laughs) questioning and constant qualifying and just this desire to absolutely know the answer before you make any definitive statement that is used against scientists a lot. There are areas of weather that we are really confident on the way that climate change is impacting it, you know, droughts, Mm -hmm. rainfall. Some of those are more, I don't want to use the term settled science, but they are far closer to that than hurricane intensity. That one's a much bigger question mark. Yeah, whenever you drill down to things like hurricanes and tornadoes, for example, uh, those are small phenomena. And we're talking about, you know, greenhouse gases affecting the whole Earth's climate over long periods. So uh, that influence gets mixed in with with natural variability uh, much more readily when we're talking about small high impact things like a tornado. That's where the signal and the noise are harder to separate out, Uh, even though, in fact, there are some signs that tornado seasons are getting clumped together such that you have really busy year or a really busy season and the next year may be extremely quiet. And that kind of whipsawing back and forth is consistent with what we're seeing with rainfall. You know, very, very yeah. wet years like the year we, we're having now right. and uh, intense drought years. So so there's some consistency, but still, you know, good questions, legitimate research. None of this uh, in any way counters the knowledge that what the gases are putting in the air are warming up and destabilizing our global climate. And those large-scale top-level impacts, sea level rise, overall warming effects on plant life, on ecosystems, and all that, those those are real and, and those are going to continue. And regardless of whatever research goes into the smaller 
details or you know particular ecosystems we know that top line stuff and there's really just no debate about it so people need to understand that that you know there's no scientific divide on on the uh, first order stuff and i think the um this really this uncertainty part of it brings me to another one of the infamous denial list lines that we hear um, whenever people are arguing against climate change. And that is, you guys can't even predict the weather three days out. <laughs> oh, don't you're get not me even started. getting that right. What makes you think that you're uh, getting uh, a cl- you think you know what sea level rise is going to be in 30 years? Yeah, right. <laughs> what do you say whenever yeah. you hear an argument like that? Oh, it's entertaining sometimes when that line pops up on Twitter or on Facebook because it's <laughs> often batted down with amazing speed. You know? uh, well, as people point out in such arguments right off the bat, you know, climate and weather are not the same thing. You know, uh, one of my favorite analogies, which I picked up from Marshall Shepard, uh, Mr. Weather Geeks, is um, uh, climate is your wardrobe and weather is whatever you put on on a particular day, right? And as the climate changes, you're going to need a bigger wardrobe because you have to account for those situations where you're going to have weather you didn't expect or haven't experienced before. So, um, yeah, weather is different. When, you know, we, we talk about models that are deterministic versus probabilistic, and I know you know about this. So if you're predicting a high of 89 for tomorrow, that's a deterministic forecast, right? It's probably more accurate to say there's a 90% chance tomorrow that the high will be between 86 and 92, right? Right. (laughs) But when you're in a hurry or you're looking at your app, you can't deal with ranges of probabilities. And, you know, you just want a number, right? So we're used to thinking of the forecast high is 89. And we know it could vary a couple degrees. And once in a while, it'll vary a lot more. Uh, Those forecasts are are good and getting better every, every year, essentially. So if we pull back to the period, say, two or three weeks out, that's where day-to-day weather forecasting gets pretty pretty iffy, right? Because um, the accumulated errors over a day or two or three days, those become pretty major. But we could still say something about uh, things like El Nino and La Nina and how those are going to affect next winter, you know, whether we're going to have a wet winter in the southeast or a dry winter. That's shaped a lot by El Nino and La Nina, and we can predict that uh, months out now pretty well. So that's kind of on the so, order of, of, of our climate, not climate change, but yeah. that's what our climate is. Climate is... Yeah, it, that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's so we've got our weather, so our that, climate. Yeah, and so I think of the El, El Nino and La Nina as kind of a bridge between those day-to-day weather forecasts people think of and the climate projections which they, some folks think of as a bunch of hooey because they can't predict the weather next week. What, what could they say about next century? Uh, and, you know, if you go to any substantial climate change document, like the IPCC reports, you'll see endless charts showing uh, probability ranges, right? Because climate scientists know that you can't predict with precision that the amount of warming in the next century will be exactly 3.682 degrees, right? Right. I mean, for one thing, we don't know how much CO2 people are going to be putting out for the next 80 years. So th- there are all these layers of what we call conditional probability. So the scenarios say, well, we're, if, if we put out a whole lot of CO2, then we can expect X to X degrees of warming. If it's less, then we can expect X to X degrees. And even those ranges are couched as likely or very likely. 
uh, by IPCC. So there's a real attempt to uh, put this in the proper context, you know, that, that these projections aren't giving you a precise number like tomorrow's weather forecast because they're not, they're not intended to. But that doesn't mean we don't know the world is warming and that it's going to continue to warm. That's basic chemistry and physics going back hundreds of years, you know. I, w I also like the analogy of flipping a coin um, with our weather. You flip a coin and you kind of do that over the course of a week and it's chaos, you know. And whenever you flip a coin 10,000 times, and that's mm -hmm. where we get into the climate category rather than daily weather, then that chaos is smoothed and you can actually predict, hey, you know, statistically, it should be about 50-50 if you're flipping that coin yeah. 10,000 times. It's actually easier to mm -hmm. say, you know, uh, to predict something that is not as chaotic as our daily weather patterns. Exactly, right. Not, not that's that a, climate, a really good way to put it. Not that... <laughs> Any sort of climatology is easy because <laughs> it's not, no, no, especially it's not climate modeling, yeah. but I'm just saying. Yeah, but it's a, but in some ways, about. yeah, exactly. As you're saying, it's, we have in some ways a lot more confidence in saying, you know, 50 years from now, Minneapolis will have a warmer climate than it does now uh, than we do in saying three weeks from now, the temperature in Minneapolis will be 56. Yeah. There you go. Perfect. So um, this brings me to our last climate myth that we're going to debunk today. And it's another favorite line that you might have heard a relative say, or maybe you've seen it on Facebook. And that's, we're coming out of the last little of the little ice age. And don't forget about the medieval warming period. What is your response whenever you see <laughs> kind of those two, the Little Ice Age and the medieval warming period, those two periods in time brought up? Well, I'll tell you something. When there's a topic I don't really know that much about, if I can grab onto one phenomenon and then I'm talking to someone who knows a lot about that, that, that issue and I can say, hey, I know about X, I feel good because I feel like I'm impressing them because I know about this thing and I wonder if they've taken that into account. So I, I can relate to... Uh, bringing up something like the medieval, uh, you know, warming period or the Little Ice Age, because those are very real things and they're fascinating phenomena. I think especially the Little Ice Age, you know, uh, just how cold it was across, uh, especially the Northern Hemisphere, uh, all the way from the 1400s to the 1800s, right? Uh, if you go from the medieval climate optimum, as it's called sometimes, say the medieval warm period, if you go from that to the Little Ice Age, uh, global temperatures dropped about a degree Celsius, or half a degree Celsius, rather. So they went down about a degree Fahrenheit. Well, since that time, temperatures have risen about two degrees Fahrenheit. So we've already essentially doubled the temperature rise since the Little Ice Age that, that, that was the temperature drop of the Little Ice Age. So I think that alone tells you something, right? Um, you know, we're always going to have climate variability mixed in with climate change. Uh, this is just something we need to to be prepared for and we need to accept you know you, you always have uncertainty in your life right uh you know um you don't know if there's going to be an accident on the highway as you drive down it but that doesn't stop you from driving down the highway you just keep that in mind you buckle your seat belts uh you you drive carefully you don't tailgate um and i like to think of, of approaching climate change that way it's 
a real risk that we have to prepare for. And if we don't prepare for it, we might find ourselves in a lot of trouble. Um, now, there's there's layers on top of that. For example, it's being caused by groups that aren't going to bear some of the worst brunt of it and all that. So that's what makes climate change such a difficult social issue. But and it's hard. It's really, as a, as a world, we just need to uh, prepare for what's going to happen, what's likely to happen, and you know, take sensible precautions. And those sensible precautions involve some big changes to how we live. But at their heart, they're they're just being smart about about where we're going. Wonderfully put. Thank you so much, Bob. I'm so glad that we finally were able to debunk some of these myths. And maybe next time when one of us get one of these in our mentions in response to some of our work here at weather.com, we can, or at Cat6, we can just shoot them a link to this episode. All your answers are within it. Yes. I love that idea. Let's do it. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. I'll see you later. Thanks, Kate. Great to be here. Take care. If you have any friends or family that, you know, like to feed you some of these lines, perhaps you've seen some of these lines of denialism popping up in your own social media timelines, feel free to share this episode of Warming Signs with them. Also, if you hated this episode, hey, you can shout on me on Twitter. I'd love to hear it, at WeatherKAIT. That's at WeatherKate. Or you can perhaps send us a little love, too. That's okay. We like everyone here in our Warming Signs family, including the wonderful producers that make this happen every single week and get it out of my brain and into yours. Until next Tuesday. Bye-bye.